0: Good morning, my name is Daniel, and the Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 34, verse 1-5. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Hello, my name is Jonathan. Uh, the New Testament reading is found in Romans ten nine through thirteen. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and in your heart you have faith that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Trusting with the heart leads to righteousness, and confessing with the mouth leads to salvation. The scripture says, all who have faith in him won't be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord is Lord of all, who gives richly to all who call on him. All who call on the Lord's name will be saved. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is A.D. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Luke 1, 21 to 25. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for four months, five months, excuse me, she kept herself hidden, saying... Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. Holy Spirit, come and open our eyes that we would see Jesus today. Come and open our ears that we would hear your voice, your word speaking to us today. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you give us the kinds of hearts, the kind of heart that would be soft, good soil ready to receive your word speaking to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you've heard, this is the second Sunday of Advent, and if all of this is new to you, Advent is not some kind of a spiritual name, holy-sounding name for Christmas, the Christmas season. Uh, it's actually traditionally a separate season, a season of anticipation, of preparation for Christmas, and then the Christmas season uh, begins at midnight on December 25th and goes for 12 days all the way through January. So Advent is a chance for us to talk about longing. It's a chance for us to talk about waiting. It's a chance for us to talk not just about Christ's first coming, but about His second coming. Now, ordinarily, we'd line up our our sermon series to kind of line up with each of the weeks uh, in Advent. But the way that it worked this year is that last week, on the first Sunday of Advent, we were closing one series, ending one series on hearing God. And then today, on the second Sunday of Advent, we're beginning a series uh, called Great Expectations. Now, I don't know how many of you have read the Dickens novel by the same title, but I assume that at least a few of you have, Um, and we'll refer to it just a little bit here and there today. But if you haven't read it, uh, it's the story of an an orphan child named Pip, or nicknamed Pip, and uh, he's a poor boy, and he's being raised by his aunt and uncle. His uncle is a blacksmith, and somehow through these arrangements, he meets this lady named Miss Havisham, who's a very strange, odd lady with considerable wealth, but also some very eccentric behaviors. And she has this girl with her named Estella, and young Pip falls in love with Estella, and there's this arrangement that's been made that he's supposed to come and be her friend, and then he thinks, well, maybe there can be more. He's got an apprenticeship paid for in exchange for this arrangement, an apprenticeship to his blacksmith uncle, but that career is not really one that he was hoping for, and so then he discovers that he's become an heir to a great fortune, and the result of this fortune means that he can now move to London, train how to be a proper gentleman, and become this man that was going to inherit this wealth. In the old English way of saying this was to say that he was a man of great expectations, a man of whom now something was expected, a man who could begin to expect something of his life. And so the phrase itself has to do with our expectation of a future, a future about our own life, maybe a future about your destiny or, or how things are going to turn out for you. Expectations are a really good thing. They're kind of why you get out of bed in the morning, because you expect something of yourself. I am going to close a deal today. I am going to round up clients today. Maybe on a, on a lesser motivated Monday, it's at least others' expectations of you that get you out of bed that day. You're like, well, someone needs breakfast, so I'll go down there and you know, put the kettle on or whatever, because I've got to. Expectations can be really good. But there's an ugly side to expectations, isn't there? The ugly side of expectations is when you fall short. What happens when you fail? What happens when you fail to meet them? Now, if it's just a failure to meet someone else's expectation, you could rationalize it and say, well, they were unfair to have those expectations of me anyway. Why would they think I needed to show up to work today? You know, it's like, that, it's like that YouTube video of millennials in the workforce, apologies to all millennials. But the video was sort of lampooning millennials a little bit, and, and the boss comes to the young worker and says, you, you've missed the deadline for the project. And the young um, employee looks at the boss and says, well, you forgot to remind me of the deadline. And the boss, oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, you're absolutely right. It's all my fault, you know. So we can, when we fail expectations, we can always displace the blame. So that's somebody's unrealistic expectations. Sometimes we fail our own expectations of ourselves. You know, part of the reason it's glorious to be young is when you're young, all you have is Potential. You have the possibility of, I could do this, I could do this, I could make this much money, we could have this kind of a... Everything is before you. But a funny thing happens as you get older. You're left with no longer potential in life ahead of you, but you're left with the reality of what is and the questions of self-doubt that begin to creep in and you say, is this it? Is this it? Can I, have I hit the peak? Is this as good as it's going to get? Is this the max? Is this it? It's much better to have potential, (laughs) much easier. I remember as a young boy growing up in kind of Christian environments, you know, people would say, oh, the Lord is going to do this through your life, and the Lord is going to use you in this way. And it's just so wonderful to hear those things in your teenage years. But then as you get on into your 30s and then into your 40s, you start to think, have I hit it? And what if I haven't? What if I didn't realize the potential I thought I had? What if I failed my own expectations of myself? There's a word that we use to describe the feeling of falling short. The word is shame. Shame is a word that that we often, that's used to describe the feeling that we have when we fall short of an expectation. Maybe someone's expectation of us or maybe our own of ourselves. There is the sense of, I have failed. I didn't measure up. Maybe even literally, you know, maybe, maybe you were like me when you were younger. You thought, man, someday I'm gonna be 6'4, I'm gonna be a baller. And then it didn't happen. You're 5'8 and not a baller. Uh, you, you don't measure up literally. The result is a sense of shame. Our text this morning is found in the gospel according to Luke. And because we're playing a little bit with this word expectation, we're going to look today at a woman who would become expectant, a woman who would become pregnant. We, we use that phrase, she's expecting. Luke 1, verse 5, we, we read this a bit last week, but let's just recap. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Elizabeth who comes from the family of Aaron. Elizabeth whose legacy was priesthood, Elizabeth whose legacy was a family who had seen the greatest era in Israel's history, Moses and Aaron and the Red Sea and Passover and the wilderness, all of this stuff. Elizabeth comes from a legendary family, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was Baron. Could you imagine what it was like growing up as little Elizabeth? Could you imagine the stories in her home that she heard that happened? Could you imagine as a young girl knowing that there was this promise that God was going to rescue His people? Could you imagine the day when her parents arranged for her to marry Zechariah? Could you imagine the whispers around the wedding ceremony where people said, Elizabeth and Zechariah, is this a power couple or what? I mean, these guys, surely the Lord's going to bring blessing to our nation through these guys. What a couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. But we are introduced to Elizabeth later on in life at a point where she feels past the moment past the moment of all of her expectation, carrying with her a sense of shame, not because of her own fault, but nevertheless because of a failure to live up to expectations. See, barrenness in the Old Testament and in the first century had a very particular point. It's, I know I've walked with couples who wrestle through infertility and struggles, and that is painful in and of itself, but we don't put, in addition to it, a sense of failure to God. We we, we don't put that layer on it in our day. But in the first century and in the Old Testament, it had this extra layer to it. Why? Because the story of Elizabeth is not really just about Elizabeth. It's about Israel itself. Elizabeth, in her story, is embodying the very story of Israel. See, Israel was supposed to carry... The Messiah who would bring blessing to the world. Israel was supposed to be the, the family through whom God would bless all the nations of the world. And yet, Israel found themselves waiting again and again and again. Is it now, God? Is it now, God? No, it's not now. Is it now, God? No, it's not now. And so the story of Elizabeth's barrenness in her old age is really an emblem, a picture, a metaphor for us of the whole ache of the nation of Israel saying, we thought something was going to come from us. We thought a Messiah would come from us. We thought the world would be put back together again through us. If you read the Psalms, there are songs about how through Zion, peace would come to the world. Instead, Jerusalem itself was under the rule of Rome. How could this be? In fact, one of the commentaries I read this week said that every Jewish girl dreamed about getting to be the mother of the Messiah. Wasn't that the promise in the garden that it would be the seed of the woman through whom the serpent's head would be crushed? And so every time there was this barrenness, it was not just the disappointment or the pain of not, becoming, uh, not being able to bring forth a child in the world, but it represented a dashing of spiritual hope. It said, no, no Messiah, no Savior, no answer, just more so, Elizabeth's barrenness is a picture of Israel's disappointment, and really, in one way, a picture of the whole world's disappointment. The whole human race, fractured, broken, a world fraught with violence, asking God, is it now that you're going to act? And you can't help but feel that the moment has already passed. It's over, isn't it? We're getting too old. We've missed it. It's over. It's over, it's over. But the story doesn't end there. Verse 11, And there appeared to him Zechariah when he goes in to do his duty serving as the priest. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Which is a little clue that, the angel, that maybe angels don't look like that Renaissance art drawing of fat chubby babies with harps, right? Because Zachariah sees an angel and is terrified. And as creepy as those chubby babies may be, they're not terrifying. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb. Wow. Filled with the Spirit, even in his mother's womb. Skip down to verse 21. Zechariah has this whole dialogue with the angel, and and he says, how am I going to know this is true? And the angel says, okay, you want a sign? Here's your sign. You ain't going to be able to talk until the baby's born. Verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute and when his time of service was ended he went to his home i'm trying to imagine the comedy of this moment zechariah finally comes out the people are worried they're thinking what what took him so long and they're like dude what happened in there and he's like mmm. And they're like, "Yeah, I don't understand what you're saying." And he's like, Mmm, mmm, angel." Mm. And they're like, "This is kind of weird, but we'll go ahead and just let you go home now." Now Zachariah has the unenviable task of convincing his aging wife of what the angel has said to him, which <laughs> is a task to do, and you can't use any words. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Mm-hmm. 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 and she's looking at him like you stay the heck away from me <laughs> no what's the matter with you old man but it ain't happening tonight <clears throat> you have to imagine a little bit of what's going on to this guy who can't talk what do we do with our shame what do we do with the feeling of Falling short. There are unhealthy instances of shame. There's no doubt about it. And it's worth naming that. It's worth saying that there's an unhealthy sense of shame where people can take on failures that are actually not theirs. Where you can say, well, it's made me, I did that. I. There's an unhealthy sense of shame, and that should be set aside. There's a sense where even when we fail one another, where we can help Take the shame away from one another by when you listen to someone's vulnerability, there, there's a helpful way of saying, well, me too. And, and doing that through our vulnerability remove some of that unnecessary shame. But the trouble is, we want in our day to make this hard distinction between guilt and shame, but the Bible doesn't. That there is a kind of shame that is connected to guilt. Right away in the scripture, the, big, the picture of this is in Eden when it tells us that the man and the woman were naked, f- fully exposed, vulnerable if you will, and yet not ashamed. And yet it's after the fall that they begin to cover up. So nakedness and clothing in the scripture become ways of speaking about shame. It's why in the vision of heaven, it says there's robes that will be put on us, brand new white robes. Why? What's that a picture of, of our shame being covered? See, there is a kind of shame that rightly flows from guilt. And it's, it's difficult to talk about this because we don't like the word sin, I'd rather talk about, just, you know, just need to make some tweaks in my life, need to adjust, your experience of me is different. And and we're so good at speaking about the psychological effects of sin that we've forgotten to speak about the theological dimension of sin. Sin, Paul says in Romans, is falling short of the glory of God. If we were made to be image bearers, people who reflect into the world God's glory, then sin is how we've fallen short of that glory. It is our failure to live up to our created design. And if that's true, that's a shame that will not go away. That's a shame that will not go away by self-talking ourselves through this. See, we can rationalize someone else's unfair expectations of them. We can even rightly set aside our unfair expectations of ourselves. But what will we do when we feel the shame of failing God? What will we do? What can be done about this? The story of Elizabeth is powerful because barrenness represents a kind of powerlessness. There's nothing she could have done to reverse this situation. There's nothing she could have done to change her own plight. There's nothing she could have done to turn back the clock, to say, "Why? There's nothing that she could have done." Verse 24, it says, "After these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, "Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take." away my reproach among the people. There are several different words in the New Testament to talk about shame and reproach, and they they have overlapping meanings, but one of the places where they overlap is when they describe a sense of disgrace, a sense of disgrace, a loss of status, a loss of standing. And Elizabeth says, look what the Lord has done. He's taken away my disgrace. Taken it away, he's done something that I could never have done for myself. He's lifted away from me something that I thought I was going to carry to the grave. He's carried it for me. He's taken it away. This very phrase that the Lord has taken away the reproach, my reproach, is used elsewhere in the Old Testament. There are three, at least three, notable stories of the Lord reversing barrenness as a symbol of something. There's Abraham and Sarah. That story is well known, maybe the most parallel to Zachariah and Elizabeth because of their age. There's also Hannah, who becomes the mother of Samuel. But there's also this story of Rachel. Remember Rachel? Man, if you don't think the Bible has anything to say to messed up people, you should really read the Old Testament. You can't get out of Genesis before you're like, dude, is this days of our lives or is this like scripture, right? Because Rachel is the woman Jacob wanted to marry. And settled for her sister Leah. Now, Leah—that's a whole nother story we could explore too. Because imagine if you're her. And the Lord, in His kindness, blesses Leah with motherhood first, symbolic in the Old Testament of a kind of favor in the midst of rejection. And then Rachel—she's the beloved one, but she can't seem to bring life into the world. But it's not her fault she carries the shame, and Genesis says that when the Lord opened up her womb, she conceived and bore a son, and she said, God has taken away my reproach. This very phrase that Elizabeth says, it's almost like Elizabeth is saying, God, you've done it again. God, you've done it again. People who were covered in shame, people who found themselves stuck in disgrace, you've done it again. You see, when God arrives, everything begins to change. Everything begins to change. The beautiful thing about the Elizabeth story is she's not even the mother of the Messiah. But she's connected to the story. And this is what God does is he shows up and even people at the edges get to, get to be changed. Even people on the fringes of the story experience the power of his arrival, the Lord in his mercy takes away our shame. The Lord in his mercy takes away our shame. If you read the song of Zachariah that follows in these pages, he sings about the mercy of God. He sings about the forgiveness of sins. He sings about this beautiful act that the Lord in his mercy takes away our shame. You see, in a way... The bad news is worse than we feared. The bad news is worse than we feared. We can't just do some tricks with words and positive thinking to to get us away from the sense that we've fallen short of God. We can't. It's worse than we feared, but the good news is better than we hoped. The good news is better than we hoped because when Jesus arrives, it's not just blessing for a few. It's blessing for everyone. You remember our New Testament reading from Romans where Paul says, look, all who put their hope in Him will not be put to shame. This salvation is for everyone, not just for Mary, but for Elizabeth too, and not just for them, but for all of us. The Lord in His mercy takes away our shame. What is it, what is it in your life that you look at and you think, I can't erase that? I can't undo that. That happened. And no amount of convincing yourself, well, I was kind of a victim of my own. Maybe. But maybe even in one iota, there's a sense of saying, and yet, and yet there is guilt connected to this shame. What is it? Maybe for some of you, it's decisions in, in a previous era of your life. Maybe for others of you, it's parenting mistakes. You think, what did I do? What have I. Uh... It's a place of shame. Could you see this morning that the Lord in His mercy has come to take away your shame? That you no longer have to carry this, you no longer have to live under this. Jesus came to take away our shame. And I know if you listen to this, you think, well, that's nice. But the the trouble is, see, I I keep sinning just every now and again. I'm not trying to, but... And when you say, Glenn, that, that he's coming again, frankly, I'm scared out of my mind. Because his arrival... Doesn't sound like good news to me. It sounds like a fearful thing. I, I, and may, maybe you're that kind of person that any talk about the second coming conjures up images for you of Jesus coming and saying, busted. And you're like, oh, I'm still not, I still don't have it together. I still haven't measured up. I may be better than what I was five years ago, but man, I'm still short. Man, I've still fallen short. John, the beloved, elder of his church, wrote to his congregations late in life. The tradition is that John was so old that they would sometimes carry him out in front of his little congregation, and he would say, Beloved, love one another, and then they would carry him out (laughs) like Yoda, you know. John wrote these letters to his congregations, and you feel the tenderness in John's heart. He knows how quickly we condemn ourselves. He knows how easily we fall prey to shame again. And he's trying to talk to them about Jesus' second coming, but he doesn't want them to greet it with fear. And he says in 1 John 2, now little children abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in in shame at his coming. Little children, I want you to know that you don't need to shrink in shame at Jesus' coming. I want you to be confident. I want you to stand with the saints and say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Why? Because shame's already been taken away. Because Jesus came and took away our shame, we will have no shame when he comes again. Because Jesus at his first coming removed our shame, we don't need to carry it when he comes again. We can greet him with joy. We can greet him with joy. Come on, Jesus. You see, this this thing here, I can't change that, I can't change that, I can't fix this, I'm stuck here, I'm stuck there, but you came the first time carried it. And all of that shame is gone. And so now I'm standing close to you. I'm abiding with you. I'm dwelling with you, Jesus, so that when you return for all to see, the only thing in my heart is joy. Come on, Jesus. No shame here. Come on. Come on. Here you are. The rest of the Dickens story is that in London, Pip discovers the twist. The reason his source was hidden from him is because the source of his fortune was not Miss Havisham, and there was no plans for him to marry lovely young Estella. That in fact, the source of his fortune was this money from a convict, a criminal that he had met in the graveyard in the opening pages of the story. I'm sorry to ruin the story for you, but you have had 150 years or so to read it, But this news sends him in a spiral. Why? Because it's not enough to have great expectations. You have to know the source. You have to know the source of your expectations. For Pip, the source of his fortune was the game changer, and it sent everything in a bit of a spiral. For us, it's the opposite. If the source of our expectation is you, that's really bad news. But if the source of our expectation is Christ, it's the best news we could get. It's the best news we could get. Because now, now, when you know the source of your expectation, you can now know the focus of your expectation. You can now aim it somewhere else. If you're the source, then you're aiming all of your expectation on yourself. And you're going to say, well, I should have known better. I'm supposed to be a good girl. I'm supposed to be a good boy. I'm supposed to be a grown man. I'm supposed to be better. I'm supposed to be be better. You're the source of your own expectation. You're the focus of your own expectation. And if that is how we live, we will always be covered in shame. Always be covered in shame. But when you know that the source of your expectation is really Jesus, Jesus who took away our shame, Jesus who is coming again to make it all right, if Jesus is the source of our expectation, then we begin to look to him. And you know what the psalmist said about looking to him? Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces never covered in shame. Never covered in shame. When I think about this for me, this is how I imagine it. I stand here and people place expectations on me. This is the kind of pastor you should be. This is the kind of father you should be. This is the kind of husband you should be. And if I stopped there, it would just sit on my shoulders and I would be the source of everybody else's expectation of me. And I would fail and I would be covered in shame. But what I imagine doing is when all of those things get put on me, I turn and I place them on Christ. And I said, Jesus, I, I can't be the kind of husband I want to be. I can't be the kind of father I want without you. Without you, Jesus. So Jesus, all of my expectation is of you. Would you give me the grace that takes away my shame and give me the grace that makes the deepest and truest longings and expectations of our heart come true. We call him the faithful one because he's the only one who never fails. The only one who never fails. This is why, for our greatest and deepest expectations, we look to him and him alone. Amen?